The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 250. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast at Brian McClanahan. If you don't want to find all those social media buttons on your own, just go out to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. You'll find all my social media buttons at the top of the page. And while you're there, give me an email address and I'll give you a free ebook and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly, Forgotten Founders in American History. You can support the Brian McClanahan Show while you're there by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcast going. You can also order your Brian McClanahan book plate. So if you've got a Brian McClanahan book and you want it autographed, get your book plate. And uh, that way I can send you an autograph, stick it on your book. You can also support the show. The best way to support the show is by going to mclanahanacademy.com, mclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll. When you enroll, check your email. I'll give you a free course, 10 Myths of American History, and you'll also get some other goodies. And of course, I've got seven courses available for purchase, the most recent being my U.S. History 21865. It is my most comprehensive course to date, 54 lectures uh, which includes 18 reading seminars. You've got lesson plans. You've got quizzes. You've got tests. You've got all kinds of stuff, suggested reading. It's a great way to get a survey course without having to go to your local college or university and be indoctrinated there. So um, if you want a course the way history used to be told, which was normal, then get that U.S. history course. But I've also got six other courses available for purchase, ranging in price from 30 bucks all the way up to 250 which is what the uh, current uh, courses, but it's a great way to support the Brian McClanahan show. Um, and of course, when you do sign up, you get a coupon. I'll just tell you that. So you get a coupon, you can get a discount on those courses. So go on out there and enroll at McClanahan Academy. You can also support the show by going to Learn True T R U E Learn True History.com. That is my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. That is a great website. A lot of bang for your buck. Over 20 classes I teach there, along with, of course, Tom Woods, Kevin Goodsman, Brad Berzer, Jason Jewell, Bob Murphy, a whole lot of great people, Jeff Herbner. Um, it is a fantastic website, and, of course, if you if you get it through my affiliate link, you support the show. So uh, it's, a, it's a win-win for you as well. A lot of great ways to support the show. And don't forget, you can always get your Brian McClanahan Show gear by going to brianmcclanahan.com. You'll see a button at the top of the page that says Shop. Click on that. You can get my logo on T-shirts. Wall clocks, stickers, plates, skins for your electronic devices, all kinds of cool stuff. And so it's a great way to also advertise the show. If you like the show, rate it on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, I think it's called now. Wherever you get your podcasts, if you like it, rate it. The more people see it, the better. And of course, maybe you're listening to this. You've come over from Tom Woods and my week-long Brian McClanahan week at Tom Woods uh, on his podcast. So um, if you're here for the first time or if you're getting this, and you haven't heard me before, welcome aboard, and uh, please rate the show if you like it. All right, I want to talk about World War I today, um, and I want to talk about World War I in the same way I would talk about the war of the 19th century, and if you're in the South and you say the war, then there's only one war, and that's 
uh, the War for Southern Independence. And I know that people want to call it the Civil War. If you take my courses, I'll explain why it's not a civil war, why it's a war for Southern Independence. It's the same exact thing. And I, 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 I had a, um, you know, some of the nimrods on social media say, oh, that guy's, he's calling it the War for Southern Independence. It's the Civil War. It just shows you. Well, I mean, look, I'm not the only one that's done that. Eugene Genovese, who is the foremost historian on American slavery, um, without question, called it the War for Southern Independence. And he was by no means uh, some rabid Southern partisan. I mean, he, he found value in the Southern tradition, but he called the war the War for Southern Independence. He says the only thing you can really call it. They weren't fighting to control the U.S. government. So... If you take my class on the war, if you take my survey class, you take any class that I cover this, it's the war for Southern independence. But that said, in the next podcast, I'm going to cover a topic on that too. But um, that war was a transformational war in American history. It was a transformational war because it established a national government for the United States on the ruins of the Federal Republic. And of course, it also dramatically changed the South uh, it punished the South of poverty. There's all kinds of ways you can look at that particular war. But it was transformational. It, it expanded executive power in ways that um, we're still dealing with today in, in 2019. When Donald Trump says that Abraham Lincoln's his guy, or Barack Obama says Abraham Lincoln's his guy, or uh, Bill Clinton says Abraham Lincoln, George W. Bush, whoever it is, these people are just simply following or a lot of the things they do are simply following in the footsteps of Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln was a transformational president. So this is why I covered him in nine presidents who screwed up America and why Lincoln was one of those nine. So that was a transformational war. But the United States was transformed by that war, not the rest of the world. World War I was a transformational, transformational war all over the world. Um, it was, in many ways, the beginning of the modern era. Now, warfare had already changed by that point. I mean, you can look at the, Ameri the, the, the War for Southern Independence, and you can say, that, I mean, the Crimean War before that, and you can look at these wars and say, well, yes, war was changing. The modern war was born. You, I mean, at the end of the, of the War for Southern Independence, you had trench warfare. You had landmines. You had the things that you will see. You had uh, the, the Gatling gun introduced. You had repeating rifles. You had... Uh, the use of artillery in ways that would maybe uh, predate World War I. So th those wars were creating the climate in what you would have for World War I. But World War I was transformational in many other ways. In fact, the United States would never be the same after the war. The world would never be the same after the war. And there's a couple of, uh, of interesting... I'm going to talk about a book and then also a film, the Peter Jackson film, um, the documentary uh, that he just produced on World War I. Uh, it's, it's a colorized documentary of World War I. I watched it. Um, it was okay. I mean, I found parts of it to be rather slow. But one of the things I liked what he did with that, with that particular documentary wasn't just the carnage of war. And, of course, the, the backdrop of it, he's got all these primary documents and he's having people read them as if they were the, uh, the participants. It's an interesting concept. Of course, people are interested in colorization now. It's a big, it's a big field. Uh, but what I found interesting about that particular documentary, I think the thing that he got into the most was the 
day-to-day toil of the soldiers in the war. It was a war, soldiers had always gone through this, but because of the mass mobilization, everything was going to change. Now, in the United States, and I'm going to focus more on the United States than anywhere else, uh, though, I mean, if you, if you look at what the war did in Europe, it didn't just destroy Europe uh, physically, because it did that in many areas. It destroyed Europe, Europe's soul. I, I think that you, you can say without question that transformed Europe uh, into the uh, Europe of the mid-20th century and then in, in modern Europe. I mean, what happened there? It was the rise of democracy. I mean, we can't say that World War I was, we, we can look at Germany, for example, and how, well, that's autocracy. This is Germany going to war, and you've got the Tsar in Russia. Uh, and uh, But you did have democracies in both Britain and France. And um, you saw what happened in those two areas. The aristocracy in Britain was completely ruined by the war. I mean, all the large estates were gone by the end of the war, for the most part. I mean, there were a few that maybe hung on, but the old aristocracy was ruined. The old aristocracy in Germany was ruined. The old aristocracy that actually opposed Hitler had, did not have the power to do so because World War I ruined them. The old aristocracy in Russia was, Russia was overthrown with the Russian Revolution. And then, of course, you have the Soviet Union, which was a complete disaster for the world. World War I produced... Nazi Germany. We all know this. These, if you've taken any basic history course, you know that these, this is the, the byproduct of that. And of course, Germany dabbling in democracy, the aristocracy, if the aristocracy is still in power in Germany, you don't have Hitler. And the people that were, if you look at some of the individuals trying to overthrow Hitler or trying to get rid of him in a coup during the war, and many times it was the old aristocracy who didn't believe that Hitler was good for Germany. He was an upstart, a populist, someone that just wasn't a real old German. But that war destroyed the democracy that came on the heels of that war, quote-unquote democracy, the democratization of Europe, led to World War II. And here in the United States, and of course, as I said, mass mobilization and what that was doing to men, how they had to live, how they had to get involved in these wars, this war that was punishing in a way that no war had ever been before. The Germans have figured out how to use artillery and rolling barrages and just let the other side have it. And of course, you've got trench warfare, you've got poison gas, you've got all the things that make this war highly destructive in its human toll, not just its physical toll on the landscape, but the human toll of World War I. And we're at the centennial of that. I mean, this is why there's a lot of interest in it. But here in the U.S., US, it was a transformational war. And so I want to focus on that for the United States. In this book by uh, William Walker, the title of the book is Betrayal at Little Gibraltar, the, A German Fortress, a Treacherous American General, and the Battle to End World War I. This is in the Meuse-Argonne Offensive, which is what the United States was engaged in from September of 1917. I'm sorry, September of 19. Uh, 18 till November of 1918, um, the Meuse-Argonne Offensive, and it's the it's the Battle of Montfalcon, which is uh, most of the book, uh, the focus of that particular book, and what Americans would have to go through. But I, the thing I like about this book the most 
is, first of all, he's trying to re rehabilitate the reputation of some of the Americans involved in this because one of the generals who was involved, and the reason I got interested in this is the general's, his name is Robert Lee Boulard. He's from Alabama. And so I was doing a little research on two Southerners who were participating in World War I. And I, uh, Boulard, of course, is one of the foremost. And this book came up, and it was, it's, a, it's a highly critical book of, of, against Boulard because Walker's position, I think it's irrefutable, is that Boulard caused tremendous number of, a tremendous number of casualties in the war when he refused a direct order to support a part of the American offensive, and then they were basically led to the meat grinder because of that. If Boulard had flanked the Germans, none of this would ever happen. And then it took them uh, four, over 40 days to finally capture the German position and clear the woods of the Germans there. Uh, in, in the Argonne Offensive, Muse Argonne Offensive. And uh, the last American casualty uh, took place in this offensive. 10.59 a.m. on November 11th, he charged a German position with a bayonet. The Germans tried to ward him off. He was from Maryland, and they shot him because he was going to come in and try to shoot him and stab him. So they shot the guy. But he was, the, uh, he was participating in this particular offensive. Um, but this was a disaster for the Americans. Now, World War I was, was a disaster for the Americans overall. Even though the United States participated on the winning side, you can look at the war, again, as a turning point, a transformational event for America in so many different ways. First, when you look at what was required to win this war on the home front, and this is the point, the part of the war that I'm really interested in the most, not necessarily the military side, though if you read Walker's book, it is a fast-paced read and reads like a novel. Um, he has done a fantastic job of telling a story, um, and I would highly recommend it. But if you look at what happens on the home front, first, you have the mass mobilization of men through the draft. Now, this is not the first draft in American history. We go back to the War for Southern Independence. You had a draft on both sides, but the Union draft um, was the one where you saw draft riots taking place, not just in New York City, but you had them also in the Midwest. Um, so Americans were resisting this draft, but you have a mass mobilization of men. Uh, John J. Blackjack Pershing came back and said, look, we, we can get about 500,000 volunteers, but we need three and a half million men to win this war. And so the United States would draft three million men. And this was the first time, really, that you had a nationalization of the United States military. Now, not long before this, you had the creation of the National Guard about uh, 17 years, 16 years before World War I, you had the National Guard created, which of course nationalized the militias of the United States. That, and, and I talk about this in my American Constitutions course, how, how a dramatic change that was to uh, the American federal order, how it was a massive takeover of a state-controlled institution. And in my opinion, unconstitutional. But you had the National Guard nationalized, and just by the term National Guard. So you had this creation of a national army in many ways. And then, of course, the draft does this. It completes the process because now men are being thrown into the military from all over the United States. They're, not, they're no longer divided up by, say, uh, state. You, know, you don't have the guys from Alabama fighting with the guys from Alabama in that unit. They're mixed in. You've got men from all over the United States thrown together, and this creates the national army that we now know and uh, and now know in the modern era, where you have 
this uh, this melting pot, so to speak, of American troops coming in from all over the place. You're just assigned, and you go in with these with these people that you don't know, uh, and you create this. You break them down into a into a singular people. I mean, the military really is a vehicle for social change in the 20th century in America, without question. Without World War One you may not have had this conceptualization of America as an American people and the nationalization of America. It really does help create that process. It's completed by World War II, but World War I is the beginning of that. Now, we can all go all, all the way back to Alexander Hamilton and John Marshall and James Wilson and talk about that, that period and how that nationalization, that one people idea, Joseph story, and those, I'm very critical of that and how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America. But it was World War I that allowed this to take place in a way that was, uh, that was um, transformational. And it was transformational because now people finally believed it. The military created that. The effort to go fight the Germans in World War I created that. The propaganda that was used and Southerners who had long been denied a place in this new union through Reconstruction, and then they just wanted to be part of it. Now they're part of it again. You see, the Spanish-American War helped do this, but World War I solidified it. If you look at the film Birth of a Nation, which was the highest-grossing film in the United States um, at the time, Woodrow Wilson loved it. Um, it was a, a considered to be a masterpiece in the in the early 20th century, if you look at the imagery used in that, of course, it's it's people are very critical of this film because of the uh, celebratory nature of the clan in the film. But when you look at the film itself, in the cinematography, in the imagery that's used, uh, the military in that film is portrayed in a in very much in a doughboy way, meaning that it's um, in the Spanish-American War is part of this, but it's. It's a, it's, we're all the same now. We're shaking hands across the chasm. World War I created the American nation of the 20th century. The American nation that we're living in that's now fragmenting and falling apart right before our eyes because it was always a fabrication. There was a very short period of time in American history from about the 19-teens until about the 1960s where you had this about 50 years you had the solid American nation, and it was forged by war, and World War I helped do that. So you've got all the doughboys over there. You've got uh, Bill Murray, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the song and all the propaganda that's used to get people to go out and join this war effort. I was in uh, uh, Tennessee last week and, uh, at, in uh, Cades Cove in the Smoky Mountains, and... Um, there was in one of the cemeteries, there's all the same families buried in these cemeteries, all the same families. I mean, these people had lived there for generations, but there was one of the members. One, if, you go to, if you go to the Smoky Mountains and you get in there, it's so isolated. You're in, this, you're in this bowl of the Smokies around you, and there's beautiful scenery. I mean, it is just the fields. It's, it's European in so many ways. When you think of the Alps or something, you see the fields. and Now, the mountains aren't as tall, but you get that same kind of feeling there. These beautiful flowers, wildflowers in these coves. It's just gorgeous. Lush. Lots of bears. Lots of snakes. Uh, which is interesting. But it's it's not desert-like like you have in the Rockies. 
Um, it is lush. But you've got this bowl. It's so isolated. And these people lived in isolation. But you've got a guy buried in one of these churches. I can't remember if it was a Methodist or the Baptist church. Buried in one of these churches. A World War I vet killed in action. And then you've got some others. You've got some people who were killed and um, or uh, I should say at least served in World War II, and, uh, which by that point, of course, Cades Cove had already been sold off to the general government. So only people that were families there could be buried there in these family plots, essentially. But you've got, there he is right there, killed in World War I. This isolated part of Tennessee that in many ways was, should never have been impacted by a war in Europe. So it's that transformational kind of, of view. Why are men in Cades Cove going off to fight in Europe? The first time in American history, by the way, that American soldiers have been deployed in Europe. Now, of course, we had fought in North Africa in the Barbary Wars, but in Europe itself for a European war. First time Americans had ever done this. And so that's, that's also a transformational part of World War I. That, the fact that Americans are going overseas to Europe to go fight in a European war. What when you when you look at this this, this grave in Cades Cove and you think why why would this man have gone over to fight in Europe when he's he's from here what does this have to do well of course America is being transformed by this um, you've got Woodrow Wilson radically transforming the United States economy the powers of the central government all of the things that happened in World War II and the Great Depression, the New Deal, all of that was built off of World War I and what Wilson was doing during World War I. You've got, for example, um, all of the government programs put in place to nationalize the economy. The railroads were nationalized during World War I. The United States government took them over. Now, I've, served, I've read the Constitution several hundred times, and I cannot find in the Constitution where it says the general government has the authority to take over the railroads of the United States. It's just not there. But yet during World War I, it happens. And so this is why war is a, is a transformational, a, a catalyst in so many ways to the centralization of power. It's why war, it's why someone like Ron Paul can say, hey, look, foreign policy creates domestic policy. He's exactly right in that way. Because without World War I, you don't have some of the things that are going to be put into place during World War II and the Great Depression. Uh, when, when Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, stands up and says, we're going to declare a national emergency and we're going to go, we're going to fight this just like we would any other enemy. And he's, of course, talking about the Depression. The apparatus was there because Woodrow Wilson had made it so. And the government never, never really rolled back those things. I know people would say, well, yeah, they did during the 1920s. It was a free, free market, laissez-faire, all those things. It never really rolled these things back, at least uh, and, and scaled them back in ways that they were before the war. And we know it didn't do it after World War II. We're still living on a World War II footing in 2019. We still think the world is World War II. Because now that generation is slowly dying out. They're almost gone, the World War II generation. But that World War II generation helped create this, this monstrosity in Washington, D.C., um, but Wilson was providing the blueprints to do it. Um, when you look at government propaganda, the Committee of Public Information and how the war is going to be sold to the public and the, the, the propaganda that's used, all of that's part of World War I. When you look at the nationalization of the economy, the creation of the War Industries Board and some of the other, uh, some of the other uh, government boards that were created during the war to nationalize the economy. 
We're going to tell people what they can produce, how much they can produce, and how to produce it. We're going to tell people what they can eat, what they can eat. Because we need to nationalize all these things to ensure that we have a unified effort, a national effort in fighting the Germans in World War I. That's transformational. The social change that came about because of the war. Uh, when you look at uh, the 19th Amendment, for example, which was already in the process, but I mean, the war is going to help facilitate the social change. 19th Amendment, of course, women get the right to vote across the United States. They'd already gotten the right to vote in some parts of the United States, but not in every state. So that's nationalization of the, of the voting electorate. Uh, you look at prohibition. Uh, which was certainly part of a reformist movement. Um, and now, I mean, you can't say World War I is directly to blame for this, but you look at what's going on here, this progressive era. World War I was certainly part of the progressive era. And the social change that made this possible. Uh, the income tax, of course, which had been passed before the war, but the income tax allows for the general government to borrow the money, or to, I should say, confiscate the money, because at this point... They look at it like, and they're borrowing a lot of money too, but they look at it as a voluntary effort. But to confiscate the money, to go fight the war, the new national banking system, which was put into place not long before the war with the Federal Reserve. So all of this is part of this process by which the United States be, is nationalized, but World War I finished the job. It had already, it's already started. You had the direct election of senators. You had the national... Uh, creation of the Federal Reserve as a national bank. You had uh, the uh, the income tax, which was now a nationalizing the finances of the United States. You, of course, had the nationalization of another, uh, another nationalization of the electorate with women. And then prohibition, which was uh, a complete reformist effort. Um, so all of those things are part of this nationalization and democratization of America. And I've mentioned this before, but when you look at what democracy does in some ways, and we, we have this reverence to democracy now where we should genuflect any time you use the term democracy. Democracy. Um, but you look at democracy, and what it, what it has always done was made, uh, made it possible and made it probable for more and more laws, the loss of liberty. Democracy ultimately leads to the loss of liberty, not the expansion of liberty. And why? It leads to the loss of liberty oftentimes because the person next to you, your next door neighbor, doesn't like what you're doing with your yard. And so because they can vote and because they can put pressure on the electorate, they can agitate, they can say, well, you know what? Uh, we're going to pass a law to make it to where you have to cut your grass every day. That's democracy. If you get just enough people, if you get 51, uh, if there's 101 people in your community and 51 decide this is going to be the case, the other 50 have to do it even if they don't vote for it and don't want it. But that's democracy. And you put that on a larger and larger scale and you get the loss of liberty because some little section is going to agitate for something and then everyone else where it doesn't really matter, everyone else is going to have to do this because one little section, one little group of people wants to agitate, and they can get enough people to vote their way, because typically in democracies, you don't have 100% participation anyways. You get uh, 30 to 40% participation. So even though you've expanded the electorate, you've expanded the number of people that can vote, you're still in a situation where um, 
just because you've done that doesn't mean that everyone's going to participate. In fact, you see less participation percentage-wise when you have more democracy than you do when you have less. But this democratization is going to lead to more war uh, and bigger wars and more disastrous wars and to larger and larger government and, law and law, the further loss of liberty. And World War I is a prime example of that. These are not discussions that are uh, politically correct or things that we people would say you should have, but the impact of democracy, and it's not, I mean, it's just democracy overall. When you expand the electorate, it doesn't matter what group you're talking about, just add more people. This is something that in 1829 and 1830, the Virginians were wrestling with when they were writing their new constitution. They talked about it quite extensively. That particular convention, that constitutional convention in Virginia is one of the most important to read, and maybe I'll do a podcast on that at some point. But that particular convention, because of the star power involved and because of the things they said, they were talking about democracy. You see the byproduct of that in World War I. You see everything that the founding generation feared of nationalization in World War I. It transformed America. Woodrow Wilson becomes the first prime minister president. He wades down into the legislative arena and he starts essentially saying, look, these are the things that we're going to do. I consider the president to be chief legislator and I'm going to do these things. Well, that had never been done before, not in the way that Wilson did it. Presidents would get involved here and there, but not the way Wilson did it. It starts delivering the State of the Union. It would cause the State of the Union address, the annual message. Now in person, he wades into the legislative arena. He considers himself to be a more prime minister than president. And this is essentially what you have now, except the president has taken on powers of a king because of the executive order and signing statements and executive agreements. At least Wilson was still willing to use the Congress the way it was supposed to be used in a declaration of war uh, and uh, agreements, diplomatic agreements that had to be ratified by the Senate. Wilson was still willing to work through the, through the infrastructure that was there, the constitutional structure that was there, um, and trying to get things done. Now the presidents just ignore all of that. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're talking about Trump, Obama, Bush, Clinton, doesn't matter. Bush, Reagan, they just ignore it all. But World War I is the beginning of that process. It's the beginning of the massive welfare state that we see today in the 21st century. All of that is born because of this massive mobilization and nationalization of everything in America from 1917 to 1919. It really is. And as William Walker points out in this book, again, this, uh, this portrayal of little Gibraltar, it's not just about the military effort, because it's, but he gets into the mobilization of men. He talks about that. He talks about things that were going on. He has to have his obligatory, uh, you know, discussions of race in the book. I mean, any any modern, uh, this is Simon and Schuster. You got to talk about race in there for whatever reason. It, it's it's little impact in the story. It doesn't even matter. But of course, William Walker, being a former professor, you have to bring that in because you have to show that America was uh, not necessarily. Uh, you know, in line with modern views and sensibilities on race. Uh, but it's, it's, I mean, that's just, that could be left out of the book. Otherwise, the book is very good. Um, and it's, um, it shows the cost of war. It shows the cost of mass mobilization, what happens when you get involved in these modern wars. And, I, and more people should read that. More people should have to read the physical and emotional carnage of war. Because I think oftentimes now we see the, it's almost cartoonish in what how we view these things. And you just push a button, launch a missile off, and it blows a whole bunch of people up. And, and uh, you know, you don't see it. 
this book really brings it home. Um, and it, and it's it, again, it's a fascinating read. But World War I as a transformational event is something that we should pay more attention to. Um, just like the war in the 1860s is a transformational event, World War I transforms the United States into the American nation that we see moving into the 20th century. And of course, that's now uh, beginning to break apart in so many ways. And, and we're looking at how that nation never really existed anyways. Um, it, it, it might exist physically with borders, but in terms of people, it's a fabrication. It was a fabrication then, it's a fabrication now. Uh, it's a fabrication in the, in the 1790s when people were talking about it then. This is why Washington spent so much time trying to reinforce that idea in his farewell address, which I just covered in the last podcast. So I love World War I, and of course, all the other things to get into it. On the Tom Woods week and the Brian McClanahan week where Tom Woods, I talked about the Russian Revolution. We talked about that together and how important that was for the future, but that doesn't happen without World War I. World War One really is, uh, if we could pick an event, more than World War Two. World War II doesn't happen without World War I. So we can pick an event that transforms the United States into the modern U.S. It's World War I. And uh, um, I'd recommend seeing the Peter Jackson documentary. Uh, I'd recommend reading this book by William Walker. Uh, there's so many other things out there that are good to read on this. But um, I wanted to cover World War I because it is the antithesis of think locally, act locally. It's, it's, beginning, it's the beginning of the part in America where you see that that particular idea is going to come under fierce assault and will ultimately be destroyed by this uh, for a time. I mean, I, it runs latent, but will be destroyed for a time by this massive central bureaucracy created by the war. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next time. <laughs>